Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Asher Marketing Podcast. I'm Anthony Giuliano, and our guest this week is Rick Ferrant. Hi, Rick. How you doing? I'm good. How are I you? Haven't seen you in a while. It's good to see you. It's I haven't seen you in a while, and you have the distinction. Okay, so that we've had people on the podcast that I've known for a long time, but I think you have the distinction of being the person I've known from the most different angles because I think we first met when you were at the Journal Gazette. First met at the Journal Gazette, then worked at United Way. And yes, and in addition to that, Northeast Indiana Works. In addition to that, Business Weekly. Right. And we also worked with Asher on some projects. Correct. Time. So Correct. we have known each other, if I go back, probably, we're almost looking at 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the journal. Gaz and I should say, for the purposes of this, you were also on my marketing committee at United Way. That's true. I even forgot about that. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know you well when you were at the Journal Gazette. But I was intimidated by you because I was writing as a freelancer for what was then the Next Page, which was like the Gen X. Like we need to get these kids to read newspapers, so they're going to give them a page on the back of the living yeah, section. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Ooh, Rick's a real journalist. I <laughs> I have to be careful when I'm around him." Um, and and I only knew you just in passing then, but we really got to know each other through United. Did United Way come before Business Weekly? Yes, it did. Okay, so yeah. United Way, you were there as director of communications. I was on the marketing committee. Yeah, I was director of marketing. Yeah. And actually, I think you were the chair of the marketing committee at was one I? point. Okay. You don't remember that. I don't. I don't. You, you were a very important part oh, of the marketing committee. Of course, yes, yes. <laughs> of course, as as many of our listeners would attest, I'm just <laughs> oh, extremely important. Oh, my God. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about you have a really interesting career path. And here's something I learned today. So my very rigorous research for these podcasts consists of spending about 30 seconds on people's LinkedIn profiles. And I didn't know you went to school in Montana. I did. I went to school at Montana State University. Did you grow up in Montana? No, I did not. I grew up in New York. So how did you end up at Montana? So I actually graduated from high school at the age of 17. Okay. And um, I grew up in a very affluent area. Mm -hmm. Well, first, I, I the first 10 years was in New York City. That was a little different, obviously. But... Moved up to Westchester County. Mm -hmm. I did not feel comfortable in that environment. Mm -hmm. But it, it, you know, the the kids that I went to school with were very entitled. Mm -hmm. um, I actually felt poor. I felt like our family was poor in relation to most of the other people there. We were, but in relation to the rest of the world, we were not. Yeah. There were. Uh, th this was about fifty miles north of New York City, and this is a place where hordes of movie stars, authors, Broadway producers. Um, you name it, lived. And so, so I this went. This is where they went to get out of the city. Right. Yeah. And I went to school with their kids. Mm -hmm. You know, Susan Day was in my homeroom. Hmm. Susan Day of the Partridge family. Huh. Um, Which is going to be a reference lost on everyone said, but you and me. But yes. Well, that's probably because I'm, <laughs> I'm dating myself now. Yes. yes. Um, but some people know who she yeah, was. She sure. was also on LA Law. Yeah. Uh, but, you, you know, Christopher Reeves, uh -huh. who played Superman, lived three quarters of a mile huh. down, down the road from okay. my house. Uh, I went to school with Howard Cosell's daughter. Really? All the way from elementary school. Okay. Um, so you get kind of the environment. And yeah. I thought that the whole world was like that. Sure. Obviously, I would. But I wanted to get out of there. Yeah. And I had no particular career path in mind. Mm -hmm. So I just started writing to colleges um, almost as far away as I could. Yeah. As I could think of. Sure. And I got a brochure from Montana State University, which which is situated along the Colorado or Colorado, along the Rocky Mountains. Okay. And 
I saw the snow-capped mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, I just got this sense of, I'll go there. Yeah. Had no idea what I was going to study. Yeah. So I was about 2,200 miles from New York. Wow. Okay. It was a great culture shock. Yeah, sure. Um, there, two, there were two major universities in Montana then. One was University of Montana in Missoula, mm -hmm. and then there was Montana State University in Bozeman. Okay. Missoula was the sort of liberal. Yeah college that you might associate with someone who gets into some kind of creative endeavor. Yeah. And Montana State was the agricultural school. Okay. All right. Um, so you had literally no idea what you wanted to study. I had no idea. I was okay. a general studies student right. in my freshman year. Yeah. Then I became, then I majored in theater arts mm -hmm. with a minor in English. Okay. Because I thought I was going to be a movie star. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I acted in a lot of plays. I've actually periodically acted over the years. Mm -hmm. um, I, I enjoyed, um, I was still trying to figure out who I was. So in acting, you can play lots of roles. Sure. And so it gave me that opportunity to do that. Yeah. Long about my junior year, I realized that I was neither handsome enough nor talented enough <laughs> <laughs> to make it in the in the acting business and, yeah and one day i walked into the student union building and realized that i had never really paid much attention to the student newspaper mm -hmm. so i walked into the newspaper office and the editor came out to greet me and said can i help you and i said well i've been here for three years and i just i'm kind of like moseying around checking things out and he says well we have an opening for a sports editor and it pays eighty dollars a quarter i said i've never done this before but i thought about the eighty dollars a quarter yeah yeah, I took the job. And it was worth figuring out. Yeah. Yeah, I took the job. Yeah. And and that was the beginning of, you know, a 35, 38 uh, year journalism career in newspapers and magazines. Uh, that college had exactly one news writing course. Huh. I got an A. <laughs> uh, within, yeah. within three weeks of taking that job with the school newspaper, I marched downtown to the local paper Bozeman Daily Chronicle, a little 8,000 daily, um, pretty full of myself and thinking that I was really great and walked in and, and told the managing editor, you need to hire me. He did. And so in my senior year of college, I was a sports editor of the student newspaper and I was working 20 hours a week at the at the local paper downtown for $1.60 an hour. Oh, wow. So was sports a particular interest or that's just where you I was it? very interested in sports, but yeah. I grew tired of it very sure. quickly because, sure. because of the sameness of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I didn't, other than that college experience, I really didn't do sports writing ever again. Okay. So, so you finish school. Do you, where do you end up first? Is it Fort Wayne or do you end up somewhere else? No, no, no. Uh, when I finished school, I got a lot of the job offers that I've gotten are, and I guess this is like a message for in my workforce development um, arena is networking. Mm -hmm. And even back then I was doing it. Yeah. I was uh, doing a story on um, Montana having its first public broadcasting station. Mm -hmm. I was at the house of a person who was trying to put this together and he was meeting with the commissioner of higher education. Mm -hmm. And so I was sitting at the kitchen table doing this interview, but having this discussion. And I actually should add that right out of college, I did work for the Billings Gazette as a correspondent in Bozeman. That would be like my first job. Um, but it was as a, it was as a correspondent. So I wasn't really on staff. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm at the kitchen table with this guy that's trying to set up public broadcasting and the commissioner of higher education for the entire state. I left, I'm walking to the driveway to get into my car and, and, and this man says, 
hey, you need to get Larry your resume. This is the commissioner of higher education. I'm 22 years old. I still don't know what, what I'm doing, yeah. right? We all thought we knew what we were doing at 22. Sure. I didn't. Yeah. Sent them my resume. He hired me. And at 22, I became the director of communications for the Montana University System. Oh, wow. Okay. So how long does that last? How long did you do that? That lasted about a year. Okay. Moved to the Midwest, took a newspaper job. Okay. Um, and then I became sort of a nomadic journalist. Mm -hmm. I worked at various places across the country. Um, I worked at the Denver Post, which is a Pulitzer Prize-winning mm -hmm. newspaper. Um, I worked for Time Magazine mm -hmm. as the Rocky Mountain Region correspondent. Um, I wanted to run my own newspaper. My, sort of my goal was if I go to these big places and establish a name for myself, it should be relatively easy for me to get an editorship because mm -hmm. my feeling was if I was closer to the street, mm -hmm. you know, in a smaller community, um, that probably I could do more for a community in that environment than working for like a big city paper. Sure. So someone told me about Gannett when I was working at the Denver Post in the 80s and said Gannett really liked to promote people quickly. So I got in contact with some people at Gannett. I took a job as uh, Metro editor and then assistant managing editor at the San Bernardino Sun in California. My goal was to become the editor of my own paper in two years, and I made it in two years and two months through Gannett. Oh, wow. Took, brought me back to the Midwest, and I was the edit, well, managing editor for the Danville Commercial News in Danville, Illinois, for yep. about four years. Okay. So this is, this is right after um, Watergate and all that stuff, correct? Well, Watergate was in the, I mean, it was in the early 70s, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. So so were you influenced by that at all? Did it make it more interesting to you or was that a factor at all? It might have been a factor. Um, my father was a journalist. He was a big time journalist for newspapers in New York, although I don't think that was a factor because we had a really um, poor relationship, mm -hmm. the two of us. What I liked about journalism, and I suppose this is informative, is back then I... And throughout my career, um, I adhered to all of the principles, the good principles of journalism that we should be adhering to today. The Walter Cronkite stuff. It was the Walter Cronkite. It, it was yeah. balanced stories, looking at both sides, leave your bias at the door. Looking for the facts. Looking for the facts. Yeah. Um, tell the story. Yeah. Stay it, out of the story. Don't be the Stay out of the story. Um, I lived that throughout mm -hmm. my journalistic career. Yeah. And it's really troublesome to me to see how far south that has gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, We still have some really excellent journalists who still abide by those rules, but not nearly enough of them. And yeah. we have so blurred the lines between what's opinion, what's entertainment, yeah. and, and what's fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just had a very similar conversation at lunch about this very thing. So, so, so you end up, you end up at the Journal Gazette when and how? So I wound up at the, the Journal Gazette because there was a, it was sort of a family thing. Um, my wife at the time had family in, in this area. Yep. Uh, did not have, she did, she did have family in, 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 in where we were in Danville, but it was kind of a combination of family and it was also a combination of, I think my time had, had run its string yeah. um, at the commercial news. And so I did actually two interviews to get the job at the Journal Gazette. And um, 
And I was there for nine years, okay. maybe nine and a half years. And and what were you covering when you were there? What was your your so beat, I was if you will? I, I was an editor. I yeah. started as an editor. Yeah. Um, so I think I I think I went there as an assistant city editor, and then um, for a number of years I was the arts and entertainment editor, which okay. I thoroughly enjoyed. Loved that. Now, were you you were before Sandy Thorne Clark took that job, correct? Was she well? She was a features editor. That's right. Okay. And so the arts and entertainment editor actually was under Sandy Thorne was, Clark. And wasn't Harriet Heidhouse in that mix? She was in that mix too okay. as a writer. All right, because I was interviewed for and failed to get the job that Steve Penhollow ended up taking, and he was far better a writer than I ever have been. So that was a good choice. By I'm them. really glad you said that because you were about to put me on a big spot. Here. <laughs> Steve was. Steve worked for me at the Journal Gazette. Yeah, um, absolutely a great creative mind. Yeah, and 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 a talented writer and a terrific wordsmith. And we we had a lot of fun working together. Yeah. Well, it was one of those things where I was surprised to even have been interviewed for the job, and I kept being surprised to be moved forward. And when they hired Steve, and I read the first couple of things he wrote. I said, they absolutely made the right decision. <laughs> you just told me something I didn't know. I didn't know you were up for that job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It came out of that next column. Sa Sandy took a liking to me, I think, because I was from Massachusetts. And she had, like, Kennedy Well, stuff. now, hold on a second. Yes. Steve has ties to Massachusetts, too. So I don't think you can hang your hat on the whole Massachusetts thing. But, but I think the whole reason the two, of, the two of us were finalists is because we both had those ties. Steve just happened to be a better writer and better looking than I was. So. Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> I hope Steve's listening to this. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I didn't know that. And then, um, again... Uh, knowing people, you know, you get out there and the United Way opportunity came to me in 2000, was it 2005? Yeah, so that's a pretty big shift. It's Why a big make... shift. I was, I was, I won't say that I was, I wasn't actively looking, mm -hmm. but I was actively thinking that I was growing tired of the news business. Um, I felt like I had written and or covered pretty much any kind of story you could think of on a big scale, on a small scale, um, and plus the adrenaline of the news business was starting to wear on me. Well, a daily deadline it's, gets it, old really it's fast. Tough. Yeah. It, it's really tough. And and how much did you foresee, it, maybe it's not at all, maybe it's a lot, all the changes that were going to happen with the digital world and with the 24-hour news cycle and all that? I would like to say that I saw all of it. I didn't. <laughs> However, yeah. I did, I, I'm one of these people. So there are people who think of innovative things and they go invent something mm -hmm. and they make millions of dollars. I sometimes think of innovative things and don't do anything with it. <laughs> and one of the things I thought about when I was in the news business, towards the end of where I left, was we would get the AP wire, the Associated mm -hmm. Press wire. We would be able to see every single story that was filed in real time as it was being filed. Mm -hmm. So we had this huge digest of all these stories around the world. And in our idle moments, there weren't much. We might go to that string of stories and go, oh, isn't that interesting so-and-so resigned or this happened here and that happened there. And newspapers pay a lot of money for that service. Yeah. But what I thought was, wouldn't it be amazing if we could provide that service for readers mm -hmm. 
who are stuck with a product that cannot be customized. Mm -hmm. And actually, we're there now. Yeah. yeah. I just did not do anything with that with yeah. that thought. Yeah, well, and there's some downside to us being there because you can choose what sources you learn from and not all of those sources well, there's, are Well, yes, there, there yeah. are all kinds of problems with that, <laughs> but that is one of the problems with, with printed newspapers. You can't say Anthony over on whatever street it's yeah. on wants to have nothing but sports on sure. page one sure. and Rick on the next block wants to have nothing on there but, you know, arts and entertainment. Yeah. It's not doable. Yeah, yeah. So so tell me about the United Way and your time there because you shift out of the, the only career you're really known to working for a nonprofit and, you know, advocating, be, being the chief voice for advocacy for the organization. What's that like? And then why do you shift back to more of a journalist role? Well, that was not voluntary. My, my going to United Way was voluntary. The CEO at the time... Again, I had obviously done some reporting with her and, and she wanted me for the job. And so unfortunately, lots of people get jobs and they've gotten the job before the actual process has taken place and they just say, be patient. Um, so she liked my work. I guess she liked a lot of things about me. And um, I was, as I said, I was tired of the newspaper yeah. business. Yeah. And I had spent 35 years thinking that if you went and did marketing, you went to the dark side. That's yeah, what we sure. always talked about. Sure. But, but I guess I had come to the point where I was willing to go to the dark side. <laughs> dark side looked pretty good. <laughs> yeah. As long as, as long as what was important to me, though, was I wasn't going to sell my soul. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go sell something I don't believe yeah, in. Sure. I'm not going to sell something where I have to put a spin on it to make it look better than it really is. Yeah. So the marketing jobs that I've had have been jobs that I do believe in, that I don't have to compromise my ethics. Um, so anyway, I don't know, what was your question? I lost track of your question. I was, get, was getting back to this. Oh, you were saying, what's it like to be the spot? Well, um, initially, and I'll say even times now, it's different being on the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and having people ask you questions as yeah. opposed to you asking them the questions. Sure. Um, but I, I think I, I think I fell into the role pretty well. I, I bought into the United Way mission. Um, I bought into the good things that United Way was trying to do for people. So it wasn't really that hard for yeah, me sure. to do it. I, I did miss, um, and at times probably still do miss the freedom, um, maybe to go places with a story yeah. that, 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 that I can't, or, the freedom of variety, mm -hmm. right? Because when you're when you're marketing for an organization, you have variety at Asher. Yeah. But when you're marketing for an organization, you are pretty much yeah. in that it's lane. It's depth versus breadth. Yes. It really is. And it's, you know, having about zero attention span, Asher has served me well because if I lose, you know, if something loses my attention, I turn to the left and there's six other things that need my attention from completely different that industries. That explains why I had such a problem with you in United Way. <laughs> You had a problem with me everywhere. <laughs> so so then you go to Business Weekly, which at the time is kind of a startup publication. So they, right? so they downsized yeah. is what happened to my job at United Way. That's when we went through the recession, remember, yep. in 2008. Yep. Um, so fewer funds coming in. So it became the position, I, can't, I don't really remember, either essentially eliminated or part-time or something like that, but, but that was the end of the rope. And... 
I didn't necessarily want to get back into journalism. All I was doing was looking for a place to land um, until I figured out what my next step was. Um, so, and I, if, if Barry Rockford's listening to this, he's saying, oh, you only came to Business Weekly because you're looking at it. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's that's the truth of it. And it turned out to be a good little three-year transitional thing mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, I was treated very well. I was given extraordinary freedoms and extraordinary trust. And so I was able to do a lot of the stories that I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and I have to thank you for giving me a opportunity because you recommended me as a columnist for Business Weekly, which I still do to this day. Do you really? Yes. That was, I think that was over 10 years ago. Yeah, and I I still have not collected my finder's fee yet, so. (laughs) Well, I will give you a cut of what I make, (laughs) which 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 is is zero dollars. Yeah, I know. That's not going to be a lot. Yeah. Um, So so you're you're doing business stories for Business Weekly, um, and you do that for about three years. And I remember you said to me once, you said, I like what I do a lot. But I'm thinking about wanting to, instead of reporting on what's happening, being part of what's happening or something along those lines. Well, that was part of the United Way thing, too. Mm -hmm. I I mean, so all the way back in 2005, I was starting to think, I'm tired of being an observer. Mm -hmm. I see people doing good things out in the community for Mm -hmm. people, and all I'm doing is the observer, and I'm just writing about it. Mm -hmm. So so between the period of then and when I took my current job, that was still a recurring thought in my head that... I really wanted to be more involved in the community. Yeah. And so if that required a, a little more um, bias on my mm-hmm. part, if you mm-hmm. want to say that, where I'm actually supporting an, an organization. You got to advocate for the organization. And advocate. Yeah. Well, then that's, then that's perfectly fine. I mean, I'm, I'm still like that. I mean, I'm on the Easter Seals Art Board because I really believe in providing opportunities for, mm-hmm. you know, people yeah. with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I'm on the Make-A-Wish Council because yeah. I think we got critically ill kids out there and we, we need to be giving them some opportunities for joy. And so that's still a big part of my fiber yeah. is, is, is uplifting others or doing things for the community. And it's yeah. very hard to do when you're the more traditional journalist. Yeah, sure. Sure. So, and, and you, and I always saw that you brought that journalistic interest in the truth to all the roles you played. I remember once you called me and I can't remember if it, when it was your business weekly or Northeast Indiana works. And I'm like, Rick and I have always been friendly. And I was like, Oh shit, Rick has his journalist hat on. He's asking me tough questions. (laughs) I wasn't prepared for this. I, 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 you know, I think whether it's marketing or journalism or, or, you know, anything in that, you know, in that sphere, um, what is vitally important to me is the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, when we talk about, uh, journalism or marketing or PR or what you do, it's about relationship building and it's about relationship building with the truth and with integrity. Yeah. And I will not sacrifice that. Well, and I think one of the things that has been sort of a weird outgrowth of the media environment we're in, I mean, there's a lot of bad things about it, but one of the things I think, and I genuinely believe this to be true, that people have really finely attuned BS meters for marketing stuff. If it's, if it's too polished, if it's too pretty, if it doesn't sound real, 
because people are getting so much information from friends and family, not all of it, which is accurate, but they're hearing it in a very conversational tone. They're getting information from quote unquote real people. The stuff that we used to take as fact in terms of mass media messages, more on the marketing side, we're now starting to say, that doesn't seem real. I don't trust it as much. I think that's a good thing. Um, it creates challenges for marketers. But as you said, you know, if you really believe in your organization and you tell the truth about your organization, that's starting to rise to the top a little bit. I hope you're right. Yeah. I hope yeah. you're right. I'm also an optimist and I could be entirely yeah, wrong. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that I'm that optimistic about it. Like mm-hmm. one of the one of the trends that I've seen is um obviously I would be under the category of serious person. Okay. But I've noticed that um like just with TV commercials mm-hmm. I can't even figure out what the heck they're selling if it weren't for the fact that there was the name for something. And so I think what's happened in a lot of marketing is it becomes entertainment-based. Sure, sure. And the entertainment that you're giving to people may, on the surface of it, seem to have nothing to do with the product. Yeah. Now, I think I think that's very savvy on the part of those marketers because we have become sort of a society that's that's fixated or drawn to just sheer entertainment for the sake of entertainment. We're the chicken poking at the brightest light on the board. <laughs> I I so so maybe I'm not that much of an optimist. Well, well, I hope you're right. I mean, I hope we do return to it. I hope we I hope we get to the point where, um, you, you know, we talk about polarization in our politics. Yeah. Well, we have polarization in our marketing. Yeah. Um, I hope we do get to the point where we'll never go back to the Walter Cronkite days of where it's just the news. Mm -hmm. But I hope that we do come back to some sensible way of of promoting whatever it is that we're promoting. Yeah. Well, and a big factor is how fragmented we've become. You know, because there's so much choice out there, if you're between the ages of 15 and 18, you're consuming entirely different stuff than someone my age is going to see. And you can't speak the same language. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. So we could go down a number of rabbit holes, but... um, I'm just waiting for what rabbit hole you're going to send us down next. (laughs) You're just waiting for me to... Which (laughs) landmine am I going to step on? Where are you going? (laughs) So let's talk about the organization you work for today. And I also want to hear about your work as an author because you're a published author. You've been doing that for a while. But let's start with Northeastern Interworks. Talk about what the organization is, what your role is, and why that matters. So the organization, it is the nonprofit workforce development organization. Mm-hmm. And um, how I try to explain it, well, so I, I'll give you our quick mission thing, which is um, to develop, attract, and retain talent. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the very succinct thing of, of what our, our mission is. And you've been there how long? I've been there. Uh, come August, it'll be eight years. Wow, Okay. All right. Yeah, it's a wow to me too. Yeah, yeah. Time flies. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be 98 next year. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so so I like to use this example on explaining um, Northeast Indian Works. You know, we're kind of like the crest of, of workforce development. Mm-hmm. So, or, or not the crest, the Procter & Gamble. So you have Procter & Gamble. Sure which has a whole bunch of products. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we are. And one of our major products are the Work One Northeast Career Centers. Yep. Um, Lots of people like to still think it's the unemployment office, but we do very little with unemployment anymore. Most of that comes out of Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. 
We provide uh, job search help, career guidance, uh, workshops to help people improve their skills. We provide access to training. Um, there are a whole host of things that those career centers do do for folks. We also provide a lot of labor market information. Um, so you probably see me talk a lot about statistics yeah, and, sure. and, and that sort of thing. Um, those are a lot of the things that, that, that we do, but we work, we work from this philosophy. So it used to be that, you know, places like work one or Northeast Sandworks would start with the individuals, which would then benefit the companies. We flipped that. It's now you start with the companies because the companies have the demand. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to be working with individuals, you want to align them for what the demand is of employers. Position them for success. So we yeah. look at what do employers need, and then we can come back and work with the individuals. And you're right, position them for success. That's an exact, instead of instead of having them go after some kind of career that's going to fade out in the next you know, yeah. two, three, four years. So, so let me ask you a, a difficult question, and, and you can pass on this one. What's going on with the labor market right now? Because I, I'm hearing I'm hearing all kinds of things, and I don't know what's true. You know, we're we're back to sub four percent unemployment is the number I hear. I don't know if that's oh, it depends on what county it is, but yes, sure. we're we're somewhere down around four percent or less. Yes, and, and I hear all this anecdotal stuff, and and I hear it from people who are in a position to know. I can't find qualified workers. Correct. Yet we're coming out of a pandemic where the economy seemed really soft and people were, you know, and I'm hearing there's pent up demand and it's going to be glorious days ahead from an economic standpoint. And I'm hearing where, what's really going on? I'm absolutely not going to punt on this. Okay. You don't have to worry about All right. I didn't think you would, but. So we had a low unemployment rate before the pandemic. Yeah. It was somewhere, I think, in the region about 3.1%. Pretty much statistical zero in terms of unemployment. Well, we're, 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 yeah. So then and now we're basically what economists will say is full employment. Mm -hmm. We also had a worker shortage. We have a worker shortage now. The worker shortage now quite possibly could be more acute. And here's why, because some things happened during the pandemic where people left the labor force. And while we don't have all the data yet, I am more than happy to speculate on what happened and what's going on. So a lot of people talk about, well, the reason why the people left the labor force is because they're riding on the stimulus payments and they're riding on the sure. expanded unemployment. And, you know, the implication is what a bunch of lazy people and they're just sitting out there just getting, you know, government relief. Yeah. Well, it's possible, there, it's not possible, there is some of that, but I don't think that's the major reason. And, and the major reasons I think are, one, retirements. So we had a retirement issue. I like to call it a silver tsunami. Mm -hmm. um, is that your own phrase? Well, <laughs> I feel like it good. is, but yeah. now it's all over the map. And okay. it's like one of those things, you know, Anthony, where if you could, if you could invent a phrase, see how long it takes to come back around. <laughs> so I don't know, but okay. everybody uses it. But anyway, one in four workers in Northeast Indiana is at or near retirement age. Mm. And that percentage continues to grow. Um, I believe that during the pandemic, we had a lot of people who were at or near retirement age who were sitting there thinking, do I have enough money? Can I make it go? And just kind of like just pulled the door shut and said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to retire now and stay safe at the same time. And we do have a lot of employers telling us that most of the attrition they've had during the pandemic was through retirement. Okay. 
So that seems to be a pretty solid reason. Yeah. I think another reason is is this whole child care thing where, you know, the school schedules were all screwed up or people yeah. couldn't find child care. So I think in that case, you had some two-income families that became one income. In some cases, if they had one income, they became no-income yeah. families. So I think there are a lot of factors. And I think eventually the data will show these, these, these were the most significant factors that are leading to the worker shortage. The foundational problem, and we used, we used to sidestep this because it's a little touchy. The foundational problem with the worker shortage is we don't have enough people in Northeast Indiana. Just the sheer numbers. Bottom line. Yeah. And re the reason why that's a touchy subject is we're trying to attract businesses, mm -hmm. right? I think... The door is open. People are now addressing that issue a lot more openly. I think one of the reasons why people feel a little more comfortable doing it is we're not the only region that has this mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how does your work in that environment, how does that change your work? Okay. So how does, the, you mean in the pandemic environment? No, in an environment where you have all these Oh, it makes it extremely difficult. Yeah, it, it it it. We have we have meetings often. How do we how do we resolve this? Because we have a lot of employers that are coming to us and saying, "What else can we do? How else can we get?" Yeah, um, you see, some employers are paying people weekly, daily to try to you know attract. Oh, there are people. all kinds of things going on yeah. out there. There are people paying weekly, daily. There are people that are saying you get benefits on the first day. There are mm -hmm. people saying we'll do a flex get. There are people that are saying we'll give you a four-day work week. Um, there is some movement in wages. It's probably not enough, but you'll see some employers increasing starting wage. Um, they're, 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 we're, we're, we're trying to clean out down to the bottom of the barrel to figure out how we can uh, fill these open positions. I think about a month ago, uh, we had 12,000 job postings, online job postings in Northeast Indiana. Okay, but those job postings, some of those are not just one job, they're multiple jobs. So what we can say is right now, we probably have well more than 12,000 job openings in Northeast Indiana that are going unfilled. Mm -hmm. What are the greatest needs? Oh, it, it runs the game. It's all over the it's, place. It's, it's, it's all over the place. The healthcare industry, which has always needed people, still needs people. The manufacturing industry, which needed people, still needs people. Obviously, the food and accommodations industry mm -hmm. is struggling and yeah. needs people. It, it, it's all over. Okay. Well, Let's talk about some of the stuff you're working on. And here I want to kind of bring in the work you do as an author because you're working on two books now. You just published a book and you had published a book before that. Yep. So good. You did your research. A little bit. I'm yeah. really impressed. Well, it helps that I know you. <laughs> <laughs> Ask the people who I didn't know how well this went and they will <laughs> tell you that I was ill prepared, um, even more so than I am today. So Talk about your work as an as an author, and then tell me what are some of the big things you're working on for Northeast Indiana Works as a writer in general. Okay. So as an author, um, yes, I um, had a book published uh, back around 2003 about an Amish woman who left the fold to join the English, um, which is everybody who is an Amish. At the time, it was unique. 
uh, you know, now we've seen all these movies and TV shows and there have been other books, but yeah. at the time it, it was the first, if not the first, it was one of the first books about somebody leaving the Amish. Um, and it got a lot of attention. It got a lot of sales. It got a lot of criticism. Uh, criticism why? Well, some people thought it was poorly written. Mm. Um, kind of hard when, when, when you have, and th these are like Amazon reviews. It's kind of hard when you have somebody who says, oh, really well-written book, and someone says it was poorly written. I think what, I think part of the issue was, was that I think people who were supporters of the Amish um, had they, to find some like way to... that you were, you were talking about. Yeah, it was blackballed in the Amish community. Yeah. So, and yet we would get calls, and this is while I was working at the Journal Gazette, when I say we, it was me, and it was also the woman who was the subject of it. We'd get calls out of the blue from Amish people saying, um, I looked at your book, um, tell me how I can leave. Yeah. As if we were experts on how you mm -hmm. go about leaving the Amish. Yeah. Um, so it scared some people. I think, and I think for people who, who, it was not intended to bash the Amish. It was intended to tell a story sure. about um, the difficulties. It was one woman's story about the difficulties growing up Amish and also how to understand the world outside of the Amish. And it really was about her spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of other things I could have delved into other than the spiritual journey, and I chose not to. You needed to focus the book on its intended subject matter. Right. Um, so so I'm sure the Amish did not, many people in the Amish did not appreciate the book. Um, I also think some people who didn't appreciate the book were, you know, we have kind of this postcard view of the Amish. You know, the, the, the buggies and the horses, and you mm -hmm. can just see them going down the road, yeah. and the automobiles are falling, yeah. and it's a simpler life. Mm -hmm. So I think there were a lot of English people mm -hmm. who also were unhappy with it. Yeah. But it, 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 um, it touched a lot of nerves. It touched a lot of hearts. It, um, uh, Ruth Irene, who was a subject of the book, sort of for a while there became like the expert on the Amish. And mm -hmm. so if there was some kind of Amish, in, in, you know, elsewhere in the country, networks would call her, fly her out to places huh. to talk about the Amish. Yeah. Um, just as sort of that, that focal point, she's, she knows what Amish communities are like. So there was that book and, and that was published by Harper. And the name of the book is? The name of the book is, it's a long title, Crossing Over One Woman's Escape from Amish Life. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's still available, but which I'm kind of surprised at. It's mm -hmm. it's. Uh, in fact, there there are even you'll get a kick out of this because you, you know me well enough to know that I'm kind of joking about. They're they're actually I don't know what they call them. They call them um, what's what's the word for it? Anyway, they're signed copies. So they'll say, you know, you have these special copies you can buy, and you pay a little more money because they're signed. And I tell people. I don't think my signature is worth even a penny, but okay. <laughs> it actually may detract from the value of the book. <laughs> yeah, it might detract from the value of the book. That's correct. And then I had this long hiatus yeah. um, from, from writing books. Books are very hard to write. They take a lot of time. Yeah. And As if someone have, who has written zero books. <laughs> but if you imagine. have a day job, yeah. uh, which I've had my whole life, sure. Um, then you have to come home when you're exhausted and tired, get into a whole different frame of mind and try to summon some energy. To, it, books, books are hard, yeah. especially if you want to do them well. Um, so I did not anticipate really writing another book until about 2017 
when, and you probably don't have time in your podcast for this, but people could read the book and then they would know a certain circumstance presented itself that I would be able possibly to determine who my birth mother was because I'm adopted. And I had to walk through that window. And in the course of walking through that window, it dawned on me, maybe I should, I never thought I would write a book about myself, right? Because of that journalism yeah, background sure. to keep you're yourself the, out of the story. The subject, yeah. But I thought maybe this would be a helpful book, not just to people who were adopted and were searching for identity, but anyone who was searching for identity. Yeah. So I started working on the book as I was doing doing the searching. And mm -hmm. so it that book came out in September and that's called Somewhere Bluebirds Fly. Mm -hmm. um, it's on Amazon mm -hmm. and a bunch of other places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now I, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm in the midst of doing research for two more books, um, both of which are gonna be extremely challenging for me. One is fiction. And I've never really done fiction before because mm -hmm. I'm in the nonfiction realm. Yeah, sure. And so I'm very nervous about that. And then the other one is 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 nonfiction. So um, I've been doing a lot of interviews, a lot of research. I've done a modicum amount of writing, and we'll see how it goes. All right. So you're working on two books. What are some of the big projects that are on your mind, on your plate, keeping you up at night? getting you excited that you're working on with Northeast Indiana Works? Yeah, there, there are two things right now. Well, there are a lot of things that keep me up at night that I'm not excited about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Work-wise. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but I have to be careful how I, I, I hear myself say these things and then I go, that can be taken another way. It's too late now. <laughs> it's too late, okay. Uh, so there are two things that, that I'm pretty fast, well, fascinated, interested in. One is... Um, we hadn't gotten into, and I'll just say it really quick. My job is your traditional kind of marketing, outreach, uh, internal, external communications. But I also do, I'm also involved in, in strategic planning for the organization. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've been involved in for the last couple of years, um, and it actually looks like it's going to take shape into something, is something called asset-based community development. Okay, It's a pilot project in Noble County. Um, People who are listening to this podcast or you can look up asset-based community development, probably have a more thorough idea of what it is. But essentially what it does is it is a neighborhood or a community developing itself through its assets mm -hmm. as opposed to seeking others to help the community develop. And one of the things that struck me in my work, this is there, there are a lot, there are a number of organizations that are involved in this in Noble County. I've been at the table since the beginning. It really looks like it's going to turn into a 501c3 and and really kind of take off. And I think it will be a good model for other areas of the region. It occurs to me that 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 one of the things that we do in society in general is we revictimize people. And here's how we revictimize them: we say, okay, come in. Tell us how poor you are, how much money you don't make, um, how many kids you can't feed. You know, I could go yeah, on and on. Sure, sure. And if you hit all of these metrics, we'll give you something. Mm -hmm. Asset-based community is about, okay, tell us what you can do, mm -hmm. right? Are you a good cook? If mm -hmm. you're a good cook, maybe you can start a business. Maybe mm -hmm. you can start a catering business. Yeah. So it completely flips the model upside down. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, I, 
it sounds Pollyannish, but there are examples throughout the country, including one in Indianapolis mm. that we went down and visited. It works. Yeah. You just have to have the commitment to do it. Sure. And you have to have collaboration in that community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you have and you have to identify the people that are going to lead the charge. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, even if you know a quasi-organization like the one I'm involved in in Noble County starts it, eventually you want the neighborhood leading it. Yeah, sure. Not some outside organization. Sure. And then the other thing I'm working on, which is pretty traditional, um, more in line with with you know some of the the, the the standard work that I do, is I'm working on putting together a proposal to do a region wide um, manufacturing campaign, mm -hmm. manufacturing awareness campaign that would also have an experiential element to it, as in it's not just you know utilizing your traditional social media you know kind of outlets but also uh, hands-on experience. Mm -hmm. And possible follow-up, um, I'm still kind of working on that. So oftentimes what we do with marketing campaigns is they kind of disappear, right? And you put the big stuff out there and, and even if you had experiential stuff, you put it out there and then one day there's nothing left for the people, yeah. right? And what I wanna do is find a way for it to continue. So is this targeting high school students? Is it targeting career changers? It's going, to be it's going to be targeting middle school students. Okay. All right. So I've done a lot of talking. I've, I've talked to a lot of people on the phone and everything. And it just seems that the, you know, the wheelhouse for getting, you know, once kids get into high school and they have all of those requirements and people, the kids are put into niches and everything, you know, they're kind of moving on a career path that it's hard to get out of. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at middle school students before they have to make those decisions in high school. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, let's do a couple of quick hit questions. Um, what's your best career advice? You've had different careers. You've had you know, a path that changed and then changed back. If somebody were to ask you, what's the key to career success, fulfillment in your career, what would you say? It's what I said before, honesty and integrity. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that that's, there are people who have had really good career success without being honest. Plenty. Um, if you want to live that way, if you can live with yourself being dishonest, go ahead. I can't. I also think that eventually it catches up with you, right? And so in relationships that you build, whether, you know, I'll use the media as an example. I would like to believe um, they think this way, but if they do, it's the truth that when they come to me and I am talking to them, I'm giving them the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would hope that more people than not would take the honest route. Okay. What about um, your organization? If somebody said, what's Northeast Indiana Works? If you had to sum it up, how would you sum it up? Well, I would say uh, we help people uh, plan careers and get jobs, and we help employers uh, fill jobs with skilled people. Okay. All right. Very succinctly said. I kind of pulled that out of my hat. I mean, it's, it's it, we've talked about yeah. it, but it was like if I had to do it in that, yeah. In it's that really space. fun to ask you difficult questions for a change, so this is good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, keep going, Anthony. <laughs> okay, last one. What did you learn out of the pandemic 
that maybe surprised you will stick with you? Something that you didn't know already that hit you since March of 2020 that you think is worth sharing? Yeah, and I've had a lot of discussions about this. I don't, I don't have answers and necessarily prognostications, but so a lot of us, those that could, worked virtually. There are obviously occupations where you can't do that, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but you could work virtually and I could work virtually. Yep. Um, that leads me to wondering a lot of things. Um, are we going to wind up with more workforces that are hybrids? where sometimes people come into the office and so, and I'm not just talking about now, I'm saying five years from now. Are we gonna wind up with workplaces that close up their brick and mortar shops because they've realized that the business can succeed um, and they can save money? On the flip side of it is, what are the drawbacks to if we move to more of a virtual society? Mm -hmm. And I worry about interaction with people. Mm -hmm very hard to have the same kind of interactions on Zoom yeah. as it is in person. Yeah. Especially, so if you're in a workplace and everybody knows everybody and you all of a sudden go to Zoom, that's one thing. When you start bringing in new people, you're creating a whole new relationship challenge. Yeah. yeah. I will also, it's not just a relationship challenge, a lot of ideas don't come from people sitting down, you know, planning a meeting and sitting at a table and saying, let's brainstorm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it comes in the hallway. Yeah. And the virtual world kind of prevents that. Mm -hmm. So um, what did I learn? I learned that a lot of us could work virtually. Mm -hmm. What I worry about is what does it mean for the future? Yeah. We're social animals. Mm -hmm. Zoom kind of takes a little bit out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it does add one thing back and, and that is, I think a good out. I'm in your bailiwick now. You're all, you're <laughs> all about this stuff. No, I, I really am. But one of the good things I think has come out of all this is that it is now more conspicuous that your coworkers have a work, have a life outside of work. Here is what I mean by that. You know, there were times when it was inevitable if I was on a Zoom call that I was going to see someone's dog, I was going to see their kids, I was going to have to remember, oh, yeah, this person has two kids who are six and four. And I think we were much more compartmentalized prior to COVID, where a lot of it, it was you thought about that person as a coworker, you knew them in a work environment. And now we see each other in less formal settings. Are you telling me you feel closer to people as a result of seeing the cat walk across the screen? Somewhat. Are you? Um, yeah, and you get a peek into their homes sometimes. Yeah, you can see what's up on the wall behind yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, you know, there's a, one of my clients has her background behind her on Zoom is drawings that her kids did. And, you know, I like the fact that she's like, this is who I am my kids are important enough that I want them to be part of my work life. It's a subtle thing, but I think it's a good thing. Now, is it all good? No. There's a reason I started coming back into the office, even though there aren't, weren't very many people here, um, even though I had all the advantages of working remotely. So I think it's a mixed bag, like a lot of things, but I, I share some of your concerns, especially for younger people who are already conditioned to live lives through screens here's another excuse to do that and to not have that real world interaction. And I think we've learned that there's intangibles that come with it that we can't even explain that are important and that deserve a place 
in the conversation. Yeah, I think that's the next frontier for, and not just not just a, a workplace. I mean, just interaction. Period. I know I did a a doctor's appointment virtually um, several months ago, and I I found mostly positive things out of that. Number one, I wasn't sitting there for thirty five minutes yeah. waiting to be called in. Yeah, and it was a relatively minor issue and it was taken care of. I didn't have to get in my car and drive. There are pluses and minuses, yeah. but I do worry about where workforce development is, is I do worry about, can we continue to be productive, you know, in the human way that mm -hmm. we are now, mm -hmm. or are we gonna sacrifice that? Yeah, yeah, I think that serendipity could get lost in the equation, and that's one of the things that makes us human. Yeah. Yeah, wow, this got really deep. <laughs> it was good yeah well it was a good, was a good conversation well, that, is, that is all credit to our guest <laughs> oh I, I i appreciate that i don't envy people that go into marketing um i don't know if this is a parting comment but you pointed out earlier um in, in this session and and i agree with it entirely the amount of messages that are out there and the amount of platforms that those messages are delivered on makes it extraordinarily challenging. I won't say almost impossible, but sometimes it feels like it. Yeah. To find a place for whatever it is that you want to get out there. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the, the optimist in me says that there's still an opportunity for good stories to win and there's a better opportunity by far for people's story to be heard in 2021 than there was when I started my career. There's more competition, but more opportunity. It, it takes work, as, as you know, like you were talking about with writing a book. Um, but now people can tell whatever story they want from wherever they are at any time. That means we get some not so great stories out there, but it also means the really good ones have a chance to be heard. I yeah. think that's good. Yeah. I appreciate your optimism. Well, I hope that's I that's one thing you've always had. You've never lost it, and I'm not quite sure how you've done that. <laughs> it could just be that I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not going to say that. You're you're a good guy, Anthony. Well, Rick, thanks for being on the podcast, and genuinely, thank you. And you've always been very generous with me from the column to inviting me to share the obvious. On, on I've always and... I've always appreciated conversations with you, and I realize now sitting here talking to you how much I missed the conversations. So well, we'll have to do this more. We need to we need to get back in touch again. Not this. We don't have to. Do no, no. Thank you. Episodes, but yes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks, and thanks to everyone who took the opportunity to listen to this fascinating episode with Rick Ferrant. We hope you will join us again next week when we have another guest, and we will see you then.